Hello, curiosity seekers and adventurous thinkers. Welcome to Applied Curiosity Lab Radio, the podcast for the relentlessly curious. This season, our host and Applied Curiosity Lab's chief curiosity seeker, Becky Saltzman, will be sharing the studio with ACL's chief experience producer and favorite sister, Jennifer Felberg. The lens is, and always will be, curiosity. Each week, fun informal conversations center around one delectable curiosity bite, designed to give your brain the time and ideas to think about thinking, to flex your curiosity muscle, and maybe even revolutionize the way you think. When the kids were starting to talk about college, I played this fun little scenario with them, and a lot of their friends would come over, we'd play the scenario, and the scenario was that I had them imagine two colleges, College A and College B. And College A and College B were exactly the same in terms of geography, things offered, all the things you could measure college, how much it costs, everything. There was just one difference between College A and College B. With College A, 10 of their best friends suggested after being there for a year that it was uh, not quite as fun or kind of underwhelming. And College B, 10 of their best friends, equally best friends, said that with College B, it was better than they expected. It was great. After a year, it was great. So that's the only information they had. And then the next step was that in this kind of mental exercise, they visited each college. So they went to College A, and they had an amazing time. The person that took them around was engaging, loved all the same kinds of things, had a lot in common. The professor that they met with in their major took them, or their proposed major, took them to see the classes and just a completely wonderful time. College B, they visit, and the person that took them around seemed kind of distracted, not that into it. The professor only spent just a short amount of time, didn't take them around. And then the question was, which college would they choose? And this was a fun way of thinking about how they make decisions as teenagers. And it was really interesting to hear all of the different ways that they kind of unpack this. I'm curious, what would you say, college A or college B? What would you choose? It's difficult to answer. Would you listen to the 10 people that gave you that information? Or would you just go with what you experienced yourself, which was just one day? It's actually 20 people that gave you that information. Right, 20 people. That's hard. I would want to, I think I'd want to find out more information, like look up some of the statistics on each website, maybe. And you do that and everything is equal. Maybe look, I don't know, maybe look at the cities, see what, what the difference is. It'd be hard to decide based on the f- friends you have, how they, deci- how they interpret their year b- being there. And then your experience that you had just one day, how do you, uh, that's hard. What did, what did your boys say? I can't remember what they specifically said, because it's not like we did this one time. So mm. we, did, we did this over time, because I wanted them to understand the law of small numbers and how to value or devalue anecdotal information yeah. and how we value our own experiences oftentimes disproportionate to how we should value our own experiences. Because... For example, in this scenario, you're not going to find in this thought experiment, you're not going to find different things about the city or this or that, because those are all in this, they're supposed to be, that's like cheating. But what you could find out was that day you went the second time, 
You could find out. To, yeah, was to, that a bad day? Was it right before finals? Yeah. The professor had a grant proposal due. And you are now valuing your own experience based on anecdotal information where you can't see all the variables. And but one, would the variables be the same from those 20 people? What do you mean? They come from a certain place. They come from certain experiences that led them there. So are you just taking their opinion? How I do don't you, know. How do you formulate your Opinions, what you think about anything that's at odds with what you think, you then go to find evidence to support what you think. I mean, I'm saying in this experiment that all 20 people, you can't you can't parse it out because it's just like in this thought experiment, they're all the same. What if you take what they're saying and the experience that you had did or did not match what they were saying specifically, like the dorms were too crowded or something like that? And then you said you saw that you experienced that yourself. Maybe you balance out the input that you're getting from people and from what you experience. I think that's confirmation bias in action. (laughs) All right. Well, let me ask you this, because this really feeds into the curiosity bite, Okay, which is what's the last thing you changed your mind about and why? Well, that can be as simple as you're going to the grocery store and you're wanting to get ice cream and you head to the ice cream aisle and go, oh, shoot, I don't need that ice cream. I sh- I, that's the last thing I need tonight. I'm going to change my mind and not not do that. Well, that's kind of similar to a small, you're talking about small things like that. Yeah, I, mean, I mean, that's legitimate. It reminds me of a study that I read recently from Johns Hopkins that found that these kind of small decisions that we make are a lot more complex in terms of how it registers in our brains. And it showed that there is this kind of coordinated crosstalk between different regions in the brain. The longer a decision has to take hold in the brain, the harder it is to reverse. So for example, if you stop a planned behavior that requires fast choreography between several different regions of the brain, then it's pretty much impossible to reverse that decision. And they found that if they t- we change our minds about pressing the gas pedal, even a few milliseconds after the original go message between these different kinds of sending these messages to muscles, we simply can't stop. And I think the difference was if we wait more than 200 milliseconds, we may be unable to reverse that decision. I want to blame it on something other than just my willpower, although is that what willpower is then? Can we blame willpower then on that nanosecond between changing your mind or just going for it? So you're saying that you have to have willpower to change your mind? Well, when it comes to something you desperately want. What's something bigger that you've had to change your mind about recently? That's what I was saying. So it could be either this simple little choice of whether you should eat the ice cream or not, or a bigger changing of your mind, which lately I've been grappling with, is there a God? So what do you mean you've changed your mind? Well, growing up, I believed in God. I actually believed that God looked like Elvis. And now you think that uh, God, now God doesn't like, look like Elvis. <laughs> Roseanne Barr. Is that is that your feminism? <laughs> well, I became this total atheist. And now I'm like, maybe there is a God. I'm so I'm back and forth, back and forth. And I think that's a bigger issue than the ice cream, although the impact's probably bigger with the ice cream. Well, there are a lot of studies that have found that we are more stalwart, less apt to change our minds on political things than we are on non-political things. There was a study out of USC, Jonas Kaplan found more evidence that we tend to take political attacks personally 
And once we personalize political attacks or once we personalize our politics, once we settle, make our minds up on politics, it's really, really hard to dislodge these decisions that we make or these ideas that we settle on. And this study took 40 self-avowed liberals who reported to have deep convictions, and they put them inside a functional MRI scanner, and they started to challenge their beliefs. And then they watched which parts of the brain lit up, and they concluded that when participants were challenged on their strongly held beliefs, political in this case, they were there was more activation in the parts of the brain that, that were thought to correspond with self-identity and neg- negative emotions, the amygdala, and that brain processes politically charged information or information about strongly held beliefs differently and perhaps with more emotion, more emotional triggers as shown in the brain, then it possesses more mundane facts. Mm-hmm. So it may explain why when we attempt to correct misinformation about people's... We take it as it's an affront to ourselves. And it can actually backfire, leaving people more convinced of their convictions. Man, how do you combat that? I don't know. How do you combat that? I'm trying to think of what the last thing I changed my mind about. And I I think I live with more ambiguity than average. And I think I have, for some reason, and it may be training, I don't know. I think I have a slightly higher comfort with uncertainty. Like when you talk about God, I don't really feel like I need to grapple with that and come to a conclusion. I'm just fine knowing that absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. That's and funny. I, yeah, I mean, I think I'm okay with that. I think that's what Ginger was saying. We were talking about philosophy and stuff like that last night. She was like, we don't have to make those decisions. So maybe she likes to live in ambiguity as well. Well, I guess there's a difference between grappling with these things and being okay with ambiguity and just saying that's not something I'm even going to think about. I actually yeah. I actually like to think about these things. I actually like to think about how people change their minds. I also think there's some interesting strategy behind it. So Bob Cialdini, who is the king mm-hmm. of persuasion, he's the one that talks about the, the six, maybe sometimes seven pillars of persuasion. And one of them is consistency. And we we know that we like to be consistent with things that we have stated before. And there's actually, in his research, he finds that there are certain things that we're going to be more willing to be consistent about things that we voluntarily put in writing in front of people, which means that social media, Facebook, and some of these places where we proclaim our beliefs, just that act of doing it voluntarily and in writing and publicly solidifies and makes us more likely to cling to anything that makes us consistent with that. And that can also be used strategically. So I think of this this interesting study where these Israeli research team asked half the residents in an apartment complex to sign this petition stating their support for a construction of a recreational center for the handicapped. Mm-hmm. And then two weeks later, the researchers came back. And this time they asked all the residents, ones that had signed the petition and ones that had not, to donate money toward the center. Guess what happened? The people that committed to supporting the center probably paid more for it than the people that didn't commit to it. Of the people that signed the petition, 92% donated. Guess what percentage of the people that hadn't signed the petition? 50. Oh, my God. Am I right? Yes. (laughs) Yay. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I could see that. Here's the thing that I would suggest is that sometimes 
putting our opinions out on Facebook, the algorithms will know what we believe. They'll understand how putting it out there on Facebook or putting it out there on social media. We invested in it. We're so invested. But those things can be manipulated yeah. then because if you want to get someone to, to do something like this, I think Cialdini calls it persuasion. Yeah. So it's like things you do in order to prepare to persuade. People value consistency because they think it has something to do with competence, too. Oh, right. Because if you change your mind, you were incompetent. Yeah. Then how do you balance? How do you admit to learning something you didn't know? I have my list. Ah, fantastic. Flip floppers. Flip flopping is changing your mind. Right. And it's just a negative way of saying that. You've changed your mind. I have a list of politicians who have a his have had some fun history of changing their minds. Okay, go. George H. W. Bush. Read my lips. No new taxes. So pledged George H. W. Bush at his 1988 Republican National Convention. But that promise made for an excellent soundbite. Until Bush raised several taxes years later as a part of the budget compromise with congressional Democrats. I know. And I know people use that against him. And I get it. I think the lesson there is beware of definitive statements. Mm -hmm. Beware of nevers, nevers and always. Always. Yes, mm -hmm. because they'll come back to bite you in the ass. <laughs> bite you in the arse. John Kerry. What was John Kerry? For the war before he was against the war. John Kerry authorized the Iraq war, but then campaigned against it. The Bush camp put out an attack. Do you remember when they did the political commercials against John Kerry where he was on a on a windsurf and he was like go going from one to the other to the other to no. show that he was not consistent? When I was five and you asked me what 10 times 36 was, I said it was 17. But when I learned multiplication, I still thought it was 17. I knew. <laughs> I picked one that we could easily say. <laughs> I knew it was. What did you say? 10 times 36? Would be 46. <laughs> 10 times 36 would be 300. Oh, 10 times. <laughs> I thought you said 10 plus. When I learned multiplication. Don't put me on the spot. <laughs> <laughs> you said plus. Oh, okay. Now you're getting used to times tables. Yeah, but the point is... 360. Like, why is it totally okay to learn new things and then change your mind? Right. Is there an age? Is there a order of magnitude? You and I were talking a couple of days ago about this topic in general, and you were saying, you know, some people think that when we're younger, we're more liberal, and then as we get... I don't think it's a matter of going from liberal to conservative, conservative to liberal. I think it's about if we are wise people, if we're people who value learning at all, mm -hmm. then I think that the one thing we're going to become more and more aware of is not definitiveness, but nuance Yeah, in our lives. Let's hope so. I don't know. I mean, that should be a goal. I yeah. mean, I think that should be a goal. If by aging, we get more and more sure about certain things, it should be understanding more and more nuance. I mean, in my opinion, it should be the opposite. Right. The more you know the more you know you don't know. Who's the next politician? Abraham Lincoln. Mostly honest Abe. Why? While on the campaign trail in 1860, Abraham Lincoln often promised to not meddle in states affairs, specifically on the issue of slavery. But in his inaugural address, he kept repeating that vow and added that using federal troops within the states would constitute the gravest of crimes. Then the South seceded 
and Lincoln launched the Civil War and issued the Emancipation Proclamation. So okay. that was a big change. That was a big flip-flop. Richard Nixon. Milhouse. Richard Milhouse Nixon. I am not a crook. He ran against Lyndon B. Johnson saying that he was going to bring an honorable end to the Vietnam War. But when he took office, he expanded the conflict so broadly that he's now more identified than Johnson with the failed war. Let's just say you have a scenario like that and you are coming into a situation, just a total quagmire like that. And you know that politically you can win by being against something. But you also know that there's so many moving variables. I wonder what a better way to say the same thing that doesn't make you look like a flip-flopper. I mean, you he's saying he's going to bring an honorable end, but he knows... I mean, honorable end. What yeah, what does hell? that mean? Yeah, what is that? My question is, what's a better way to state things that you know people want to hear that allows you to have them also understand that what they want is not necessarily what they are going to get. That's mm -hmm. what I'm wondering. Mm. Our access to so much overwhelming information makes us much more susceptible to sound bites and stories that make sense. So you hear honorable end. And let's say you're predisposed to voting for someone like Nixon. And you don't necessarily want an end to the war because you certainly don't want to lose. So you wouldn't vote for someone who's going to say, I'm going to end the war. But you might vote for Nixon because you're inclined, to, you're a Republican and you hear an honorable end. And that gives you the nuance to say, OK, that I can do an honorable end, but I'm not for these Jane Fonda types that just want to end <laughs> the war. You know, I'm not going to do that. But an honorable end I can deal with. Yeah. It's but easier I'm, to swallow. It's easier to swallow. So adding those things, I can see how that might have been a very effective message. Mm -hmm. Who's not? On the other end of the spectrum is Hubert Humphrey, who was anti-war-ish. At first, he was backing up Johnson, saying, we're going to continue the war. We're going to fight. We're going to win. He didn't want to break those party ranks. But when he was running for office... He saw that things were changing and that the anti-war movement was growing and growing. And so he changed his tune and delivered a policy speech calling for the immediate end to the war. And again, that could be learning crap that you don't know. I mean, I think about a presidential candidate and they have they're not exposed to all of the secret stuff until they're actually elected. They make all these assumptions in their during their candidacy based on stuff that pretty much all of us know, stuff that's written in the New York Times, whatever, and then they get in, they get elected, and then they are they see the treasure trove of intelligence, assuming they read the intelligence, and they're privy to all kinds of information that we're not privy to, Right, I could totally see where you would say, okay, this is the equivalent of learning my times tables. I mean, this is crazy. I have got to figure out a way to change course because what I was saying was not right, and then people are going to attack me for it. I mean, this is kind of an interesting... There's a definite common denominator in all of these. Each one said something and then got more involved and realized, oops, I'm learning, I'm changing, I need to change my mind. I wish people could say, actually, yes, I thought, like all of you that voted for me, that this was the answer. Now that I'm getting all this crap, I'm telling you, there's better ways of looking at this. More but people think that consistency is competency. Is there one more? Well, let's do Barack Obama. He promised to accept federal financing in his campaign. Accepting public financing would have given Obama probably about $84 million. 
but it would have placed restrictions on his overall campaign fundraising and spending. Mm -hmm. But when he began to rake in the unprecedented amounts of cash, he backed off his pledge, becoming the first candidate since 1976 to do so. I could see that. He thinks I'm probably, this is just my first run at president. You know, <laughs> I'm not going to make any I'm money. I'm not going to make any, I'm not going to make any money. So this is going to be, the federal financing is going to be more money that I'm going to make. And then he's like, holy, <laughs> I'm making lots holy of money. How? I'm making lots of money and I could really be the president and this is going to hamper me. Uh, no. I better shut up now. Yeah. And that is, that's egregious because if you're basing it on assumptions that you're going to lose and this is, it's a little disingenuous mm-hmm. because it's, e- and that's where it's easy to say, like, you look at these people who are getting into colleges through, oh. through their parents che- lying and cheating and stealing. And you think to yourself, I would never do that. I would never steal someone's position by faking test results or paying some person to lie on behalf of my child. But I might hire a coach to help my kid do better on the SATs or a college prep person that can help that my kid figure out networks to get into prestigious schools. I'm going to change mostly just PU though, mostly just PU prestigious university. I'm not going to change my mind about those bad people, but I'm going to change my mind about what I might do for my kid. But that's completely different. And it, they and were lying. We're using every resource we have to help our f- kids. That's okay. different. Okay, that's legit. But then if you were out there waving the equality flag. Yeah, that's then you're, then, I understand what you're then saying. Because, or if you're paying for your kid to uh, support your kid while they're doing an unpaid internship and you're waving the equality flag, Mm-mm. you know, the, the gates to income inequality open where income begins. So I think that there is some things where it's easy to change your mind about things where you kind of, oh, that's different from my situation. (laughs) One of the- If you use that voice only, right? (laughs) If you're- Well, what is that that character on Pat. Pat. Well, (laughs) (laughs) what's the thing you always hear about that causes people to change their minds? I think when you have a near-death experience, when you, uh, I I used to think this, and when I, you know, had cancer, now it just isn't important to me anymore. Agreed. Near-death experiences, a fatal disease, a a traumatic event. What do you think of a virtual reality experience that gives you a near-death experience to help you change your mind? (sighs) Would that be too traumatic for people, or would it be a good thing to help them see things that wow. I mean you talk about Michael Pollan's book How to Change Your Mind he talks he it was a great book I recommend it I'll put in the show notes but he talks about the use of psychedelics to change his mind we've talked about that a lot which we should talk about that on on in a future podcast we should we should absolutely but in this case you could get that you could get at least a near-death experience mm-hmm. i mean you might even be able to get a psychedelic experience through vr but that's another I had, Ooh. yeah i hadn't really thought about that yeah. we should talk to steven about that go write that down write that down <laughs> question would you put on vr headset to have a near-death experience it's scary to think about would you <laughs> If you painted it that maybe you would change some of the things that you feel are so important that weigh you down and that you realize that that's not important anymore, maybe then I'd be enticed. But that was scary to have to experience a near-death experience, experience a new death experience. (laughs) (laughs) But maybe it wouldn't be scary. 
I mean, well, it's going to be fun. Well, you don't hear people saying it was scary. You hear them saying, you know, this is for realsies. Or I don't or, think they talk about the horrible parts of it. Well, why wouldn't they if it exi- if, if it was horrible? They would talk about horrible. Maybe it's not horrible. I think it's horrible. Why are you saying it's horrible? What are you? Oh, what are you? Cancer based- is not. Wee! This is awesome. But once it's near death and not death, I think people think that it was life changing. Yes, life changing. And once you're out of the woods which you would know in a VR experience, yeah, you might feel it was worth it. The The problem is with this VR experience is you you just hit the nail on the head. You know that it's fake. You can't take out the fact that you know it's fake. You might be able to take out the fact that you know it's fake. There might be certain things in VR that could trigger certain neurochemical reactions that prevent you from really highlighting the fact that it's just fake. You know what I'm going to do? I mean, I fell on the, I fell off of a cliff shooting bow and arrow at these zombies and crash my leg bleeding into the coffee table. I was going to say, because you really did crash your leg into the coffee table. No, and the only reason I crashed my leg into the coffee table is I was avoiding falling (laughs) off the cliff. When you're sleeping one night, I'm going to put the VR on you. (laughs) You're going to have a near-death experience. Oh, my God. Well... (laughs) (laughs) No, you would probably try to give me a real-death experience. (laughs) You're mean. All right. Well, this leads us into the, the most important sort of fact. And this sort of fact actually did not come this time out of PU, <gasps> prestigious university. Where did it come from? It did not come from TPU, Turkish, <gasps> Turkey prestigious university. <laughs> Turkey prestigious. This came from actually Google in the U.S. Google And Baidu in China. The top search engines found, and that's Google in the U.S. and Baidu in China, that searches for, quote, how to change other people's minds are 94% more common than searches for how to change your own mind. Perfect. <laughs> when was the last time you changed your mind? No, that's not it. <laughs> when was the last time you changed your mind? I changed my mind about ending it this way. What was the last thing that you changed your mind about and why? Thanks for listening. And I really hope you enjoyed the episode. Before you take off, I have a few more things to let you know about. One, you can find show notes for every episode of ACLR and links to all resources mentioned at applycuriositylab.com forward slash blog. It's there that we'll wait to read your answers to each week's Curiosity Bite. Two, in order to avoid missing curiosity-bitten conversations, Subscribe to Applied Curiosity Lab Radio on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, and all the other spots that podcasts hang out and wait to be discovered. Toss up a review, especially if you have nice things to say. Finally, for all things Applied Curiosity, including information on workshops and your free membership to the Tribe of the Curious, go to AppliedCuriosityLab.com. In the meantime, elevate curiosity.